but we want to send you over to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, thanks to Sarah, and I think somebody, I don't know, was passing them out with her. I just had her uh, put this together. This is sort of a classic uh, book of Daniel, kind of scary looking, but anyway, uh, uh, classic book of Daniel um, chart uh, that's we found on Precept Austin, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, just something to sort of keep you straight on the different chapters uh, of the book of Daniel, because here's why. I want you to be an expert in Daniel. Now, I'm not telling you this to brag about me or anything that, like that, but I used to coach football, college football, okay? And I was involved mostly with passing game, less with running game. And when we started the season, and we were terrible, but that's not the part of the story that I want you to know. When we started the football season, you, you know, what we did was we didn't start with the complications or the complexities. Like, for instance, if you're running a pass play and you're a receiver and you're looking in at the quarterback, you Monday morning quarterbacks, and you see a blitz coming to your side, not the other side, to your side, so you have to distinguish it, you're supposed to run one pattern, but now because there's a blitz coming, you got to change that pattern and run something else. And both you as the wide receiver and the quarterback need to know that. And oh, so does the running back. And that's a different story. Now, you see, what happens is you can take a basic play and it can be really complicated. Let's say you're running a curl route, 64Y curl. There you go. You're 64 curl Y flat. You, you got pass protection in there, 64. That tells the line what they're doing. You got the curl route telling the outside receiver what to do, and you got the Y flat telling the inside receiver what to do. So now, and you got to know if you're on the backside of that play, you always run a post. But that's just the basic play. If a blitz comes or if some other things happen, you got to know how to break off your route. Oh, by the way, 64Y flats called against the zone, but if they run man after the snap of the ball, you got to adjust your route and do something different. You're like, what? What is he talking about? What does this have to do with the book of Daniel? Well, here's what it has to do with the book of Daniel, and it's what I relate to, so it's what I know. It's this, if you want to know all the complexities of prophecy, and you should know the complexities of prophecy, the Bible is one quarter prophecy. And you say, why won't you just stick to the love and the mercy and grace? Well, what would you do? I mean, what, what you're going to ignore one fourth of the Bible and just act like it doesn't exist? You know, some churches do that. And I'm not trying to point out, but I'm just saying people do that. But what do you do with one quarter of the Bible? Well, here's what you do. In order to learn the complexities or know the complexities, because everybody wants to know, you know, what's the 10-nation confederacy and where, uh, who, who is the Antichrist? And is the Antichrist on the earth or is he not on the earth? Well, is he... And, and, and what will it be like in the last days? Well, in order to know the complexities, you have to know the basics. Get it? And so chapter 7 of the book of Daniel are complex in a way, but this is the basics of all the rest of prophecy in Scripture. 
Like, if you don't know this in 64Y curl, <laughs> the quarterback's going to go back and go, what are you doing? I mean, this is basic. But it's basic, and it sets up all your other learning about the end times in the other places of the Bible. Got it? So we want to take a look at it. Why do we want to take a look at it? Well, because the Bible tells us in the second chapter of Titus, and we're going to look at that here at the end of our service, in the second uh, chapter of Titus, it says that the return of Jesus Christ, when he comes back again, wouldn't you say that be end times? People get weird and wonky when you say end times. All it means is the return of Jesus Christ, and praise the God. Praise God for that, because why? In Titus chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, it says that that, the return of Jesus Christ, is our blessed hope. When you look up the word blessed in the Greek, guess what it means? It means it makes you happy. Now, wait a second. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to give you the end of the story before I give you the beginning of the story. Look at the last verse. As Daniel has his own dream in chapter 7, and he sees a dream, Daniel, look what it does to Daniel. Wait a minute. It's our blessed hope, right? This is the end of the account. Verse 28, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, I told you as we started prophecy and as we, I think as we began Daniel, but maybe when we were talking about some other prophecy, (laughs) sort of some of these things are melting together for me. I told you that I wanted to, as part of what we're doing and teaching here, I wanted you to get to the place that you could call the return of Jesus Christ blessed or happy. And yet, Daniel learns about it right here and he's concerned, and he's troubled. Did you catch that? Why is that? Am I contradicting the Bible, or is the Bible contradicting itself? No, not at all. Wow, for the Christian, we know the end of the story so that we can live healthy and right on according to the power of the Holy Spirit currently but have this hope that when all said and done, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to take care of me. That is amen. But the Bible tells us, not but, but, but the Bible tells us in Ezekiel that the Lord takes no pleasure, zero pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And oh, by the way, for anybody who is found outside of Christ, who isn't in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are, we're children of wrath. In other words, God says to those who don't surrender their life to him, okay, I'm going to be perfectly fair with you one who didn't surrender your life to Christ, I'll be perfectly fair to you, and I'll let you be judged on your own righteousness. The problem with that is the Bible tells us all of our righteousness is like filthy rags outside of him. We fall short of the glory of God. We can't measure up. 
But for those who are in Christ, we rec- our sins are paid for, our debt is paid, and we receive his righteousness. So we're glorying and happy at the return of Jesus, right? But there's this sort of thing. We're still thinking about the people around us. It's a real thing. Watch. And all the way back, as Daniel learned the basic building blocks of prophecy, which, oh, by the way, is sweeping. Sweeping in this sense. It covers the in this chapter 7, just like uh, the previous chapter that we talked about in chapter 2. This um, chapter covers the time from Daniel's time, the 600s B.C., all the way down to the time of Christ, all the way to the time that we're currently living in now, all the way through the time that Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, and that uh, at the end of the time of a 1,000-year uh, reign, the, this earth is going to melt away, and down's going to come a new heavens and a new earth. So in other words, from 600 B.C. all the way through eternity, That's this chapter. This is the building block of all prophecy right here. (laughs) So if I get this wrong for you, well, keep studying and be a Berean, but we'll try not to do that. So here it is. We have this thing where we're looking for Jesus. We want Jesus to come back, and that's a good thing. But at the same time, while we're here, we have an incredible opportunity to be used by the Lord to love and to share and to bring people into the kingdom of God. Now, I recognize Jesus does the work, but he uses us. So what's one of our prayers here, a corporate prayer, that each one of you would have encounters with people and God would use you to bring uh, people into the kingdom of God? That's it. You say you don't have a purpose in life, you don't know your mission, you don't know your ministry, boom, there it is. Well, here, watch this. Go back to verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, let me just take a little time out. Look in verse or chapter 6. Look in chapter, chapter 6. You had in chapter 7 the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. But in chapter 6... It's really strange because in chapter 6, the king that's on the throne is a guy named Darius. And Darius is a Mede. And look in verse 28 of chapter 6. So Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now, you got to put on your thinking caps here for just one second. Now, actually, for an hour and a half here. And here's the thinking cap. The Babylonians reigned and ruled first. In other words, chapter 7 starts out with a Babylonian king. Chapter 6 is talking about a Medo and Persian united kingdom and two rulers there. And the Medo-Persians followed the Babylonians, which means chapter 7 is not in chronological order. Are you catching that? Now, that's important for the story. Chapter 7 would actually come between chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Daniel. Now, if you're getting totally confused, here, I'm going to make it plain for you. 
Chapters 2, halfway through or so, through the end of chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, are written in what language? Not Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. Why? Because Daniel was both a Jewish person and he was a person who lived in the Babylonian exile where they spoke Aramaic. Understand? And in chapters 2 through 7, Daniel, by the inspiration of God, just because it's a literary structure, doesn't mean it wasn't inspired. You read the Psalms, don't you? And the Psalms are literary. They're literary. They're parallelism and chiasm. And I told you this. Watch this. I didn't understand this until I learned this. Why in the world, why in the world is there a fiery furnace and a lion's den? Why in the world is one king being humbled in chapter 4 and another king being humbled in chapter 5? Why? My whole life I just wondered about that until I learned this. Chapter 2 and 7 are a part of literary structure poetry type of stuff, and it's called a chiasm. And so here, the only way I know to do it is through hand signals. 2 and 7 are related. Two and seven of the book of uh, Daniel are related. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, guess what he sees? He sees this statue with a head of gold. Remember this? Chest and arms of silver and on and on and on it goes all the way down to the 10 toes. Remember that? Well, here in chapter seven, we're going to see something identical, but from a different perspective, identical topic from a different perspective. This time we're gonna see and talk about four beasts. They relate to each other. Everybody good with that? Well, right after uh, 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 we see in chapter two that there was this statue that uh, uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, the king actually went out, didn't he? The king actually went out and made a golden image and said, and actually put a golden image up like, like this, I'm gold, our kingdom, Babylon, top of the head that you showed me in my dream, gold. And you said, Daniel, that somebody's going to succeed us. Heck with you, I'm going to go out and make a statue all the way up to the sky, and it's going to be all gold because I'm never leaving. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said in chapter 3. He made a golden image, but remember what happened. He struck up the band, and he played music, and he said, every time I play music in the kingdom, you have to bow down to me in this image. And interesting, Daniel, not found in that chapter, his three friends won't bow down. Remember that? That's that chapter. Well, what happens in uh, chapter 6? Daniel was going to be thrown in the lion's den, but he wouldn't bow down. And then in chapters 4, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, humbled, and in chapter 5, his grandson of Babylon, Belshazzar, was humbled. Now you're like, come on, I mean, please. Well, what I want you to see here is 2 and 7 are similar, 3 and 6 are similar, 4 and 5 are similar, and in the structure of a Hebrew poetry or of Hebrew poetry in chiasm or parallelism, the thing in the middle was the climax of it, the high point, the thing that God really wanted you to know. And this is what he wants you to know. He takes down and establishes kingdoms. 
And you say, well, okay, that was back in 600 BC. Really? Everybody's fretting about elections? You're all worried and uh, gummed up and, you know, spouting your opinions and your frustration over the internet? And when you do that in some ways, now listen, I'm for being in the political process and educating yourself and be a good citizen and standing up for your beliefs. But when you do it, you're expressing a lack of faith. Okay, come at me now. I'll see you after the service. What I'm saying is, should we stand for righteousness? Of course. Should we be known for righteousness? Yes. But you got to know, and I got to know, here, these kings were established by God. God used an enemy of the people of God to do his work. It's not the way I want to do it, but I'm not God. So you got to remember, God is on the throne. We spray that around in the Christian world, but I never know sometimes when we say it, if we know what we mean. God establishes kingdoms and can bring them down this quickly. And sort of over the last two and a half years, you kind of sort of saw some of that. I mean, within one week, the whole world shut down. And you're like, well, that's weird. And God has the power. Now, I'm not saying God was in charge of the whatever, but God has the power and quickly to bring people and nations to their knees. Well, here, let me show you this, though. So you, I want you to know that uh, Daniel 7 is out of order, but that should, like, bless your heart because in the middle of all this, God wants you to see that we, he establishes kingdoms, sets them up, brings them down, and that's amazing. But now he's going to go back and revisit something that was in chapter 2 from a different perspective. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream. Remember, in chapter 2 of Daniel, who had a dream? Not Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The king of Babylon. And who interpreted the dream? Daniel. Here, Daniel has a dream, and it's interpreted uh, by an angel. Look at this. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, I just want you to know uh, that obviously this is apocalyptic literature, and uh, there's some strange things in here you might think, like four winds of heaven. What does that mean? And stirring up the great sea. Well, uh, some people believe, and probably rightly so, the heavens or the heavenly powers and forces by which God sets the nation of the world in motion is what is meant by the four winds of heaven. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says this, the invisible winds of God blow over the surface of the water to accomplish his will in his time. Isn't that powerful? And what's the great sea? Well, some people point to the Mediterranean Sea because it's so close uh, to where they were, but Kind of close, but anyway, it's, it's the, the predominant sea over in that area. But if you just read other places of the Bible, watch this, the biblical image for the nations of the world, like the Gentile nations, the G- nations without God, the biblical picture for the nations of the world you could, uh, is, is a sea. You could see that in 17 Isaiah 
verse 12, you can see it in chapter 57 of Isaiah, chapter 60, Ezekiel, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. By the way, let's go back to my football analogy. Oh, good. You need, as a supplement, or not even a supplement, what Daniel chapter, write this down, what Daniel chapter 7 needs is Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. If you were a football coach and you were coaching the Bible, (laughs) here's what you would do. You would bring in the team and you would teach them Daniel 7 and immediately you'd say flip over to Revelation chapter 13 and oh by the way, when we get done with that, we're going to look at Revelation 17. Why is that? It's because what we're talking about over the time of Daniel, 600 B.C. or so, until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, write this down, is what Jesus himself called the time of the Gentiles. Write that down. In Luke 21, verses 24, that's where it's referred, the time of the Gentiles, the time of the people who I didn't come to, God's saying, or Jesus is saying, the ones I didn't come to, it started with the Babylonian exile because what happened in the Babylonian exile? They wiped out the city of Jerusalem, remember that? And then Babylon ruled over that area. And then there were some fights between different kingdoms, watch this, until, remember what happened in 70 A.D.? Remember this? This is another big Bible date. In 70 AD, Rome marched into Jerusalem and wrecked it and murdered tons of people and wrecked the city. And it was dominated then through the ages, watch this, by somebody other than the Jewish people until 1948 when Israel came back alive or came back to be a nation. This is all rooted, folks. I know I'm jumping around, but remember, I'm giving you the basics, and I got to cover several things. This is all rooted in something called the Davidic Covenant. Have you ever heard of the Davidic Covenant? In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, Oh, by the way... Somebody from your line is always going to sit on the throne of Israel. But wait a minute. It was interrupted from 600 B.C. through 70 B.C. all the way up until 1948. And really, there's no king or monarchy in Israel now. And what it's pointing to is when Jesus Christ comes back as king. Are you tracking with me? There's a Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and God is always going to honor this universal, everlasting covenant. And that covenant still stands that somebody from the line of David, Jesus, says it in, I think, Luke 131. He's from David. But anyway, somebody from the line of David is going to sit on the throne of Israel eternally. Now, when has that happened? It hasn't happened. 
It's because we're in the time of the Gentiles. And this chapter gives us the sweeping history of what's called the time of the Gentiles, that place where the king is not on the throne of Israel. It's been interrupted for a time, but it's surely coming. Everybody with me? I've thrown a lot of information at you in 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So here you go. Daniel here is in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. He has this dream and he has these visions and he's in, uh, uh, in his head while on his bed. He's dreaming at night. Something's happening and he's dreaming. And when he wakes up, he writes down the dream. Watch this. This is important. He's telling the main facts. When you start a football team on the first day of practice, you don't give them all the blitz adjustments. You just give them the play because they need to know how to run that play first. And then after you run it several times, now you run it against the blitz. Now you run it against the zone. Now you run it against uh, uh, man coverage. And now you get it. How to adjust. Where do you run? Where do you look? It's complex. That's what I know. But prophecies like that, and Daniel knew it. There's so many facts that I could have written down. I'm going to write down the main facts. I'm going to learn the basics. Get it? So he does it. And Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven. We told you what the four winds were. We're stirring up the great sea. We told you what the great sea is, by the way. When you read Revelation 13, which talks about the Antichrist, guess where the Antichrist comes out of? The great sea, right. You need to read it in conjunction. So they were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it, verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, this is powerful when we get to it, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pro... Um, Sorry, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and this is important. And it had ten horns. Now, time out, just for a second. You who have been paying attention and taking all these notes and not yawning through the entire sermon, you've been, t- you've been, taking, <laughs> you've been taking notes, and you know in chapter 2 of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of, at the bottom of his feet, there was this information about the 10 toes. And that was really important, and I'll revisit it in a minute. But here you see uh, the residue with its feet, uh, and you see uh, uh, 10 toes. You see uh, that. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. So in the first uh, uh, dream, chapter 2, 10 feet, here 10 horns. 
And there was another horn. This is so important. This is the building block of prophecy right here. You and I and we need to figure out what this little horn was. Another horn, a little one coming up among them. Where? From where? From the ten horns. Before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, we're going to get to that, but most of you in here, your eyes are glazed over right now, and you're like, come on, man, please. So God does something really merciful. It's almost like he says, oh, that's a lot to handle, Daniel. Here, how about this vision? Watch this. So I watched till three thrones were put in place, or excuse me, till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where we learn something about God. Here, Daniel is asked to call him the Ancient of Days. And he's seated, and his garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven Uh, He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his, watch this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So in one sense, here's what you could say about Daniel 7. When you get home and your wife or your husband or your friend or your mom or your sister or your brother or whoever says, what did that crazy dude speak about today? You know what you could say? He gave us a chapter about Daniel, and one of the things that struck me was it was a, um, it was a chapter about kingdoms. That's important. And here it says at the end, his dominion is an everlasting dominion in the middle of 14, which shall not pass away, Davidic covenant And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. It's almost like God said, Daniel, I know. Verses 1 through uh, 8 were real hard to sort of know and accept and learn from, and it was tough. So here's what I'll do. I'll take a time out, and I'm going to show you a vision of God himself. Me, God. Many people debate this. Is the ancient of days God or Jesus? And I would say yes. Here's why. I think it's God the Father. I think I'm not dogmatic about it, but here's what some people argue that ancient of days is Jesus. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And see, in the last part of the book of Revelation, that's almost the description and very close to the description of Jesus uh, that, that is made there in, in the book of Revelation at the end, Jesus himself, or excuse me, at the very beginning, uh, chapter one. And if you go there, oh, I'm in Jude, so that ain't going to work. If you go there, it says, uh, 
Then I turned to see the voice, chapter 1, verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, girded about the chest with golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like the flame of fire, feet like fine brass. You're like, well, that sounds sort of like what the Ancient of Day was. But remember... God's not a person. Jesus has manifested himself and uh, manifested and came to show you what God is. And Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. So it's a description probably of God the Father. And the other reason I say that is, is because as you travel on to verses 13 and 14, that to me looks more like Jesus as the Son of Man coming. You're like, come on. Get to something. I need some meat here. Okay, here's some meat. Jesus, the most, most of the time when Jesus described himself, guess what title he used? Son of man. He was the son of God and called himself the son of God, but he often called himself the son of man. Watch. And when you're doing your daily devotionals and you're going, ah, oh, cool, I'm in the New Testament. It's so amazing. Oh, Jesus calls himself the son of man. Oh, that's wonderful. We're, we're reading it from a Western experience. We don't recognize what Jesus is saying is the kingdom that Daniel saw was going to be ushered in by this one called the Son of Man. Jesus is saying when he simply just says the name, he's announcing to the people all around him, I'm the one Daniel was talking about. Isn't that amazing? All those years later... Jesus is 600 and some years later. He was the one, the Messiah. And this is what I want to tell you about prophecy. Yes, put your head down and work at it and grow and learn and understand what the word says, not what somebody tells you it says, including me. Look for yourself. But God is saying, don't lose sight of me. I'm in the middle of this. It's me. The whole deal is, I want you to come and live with me forever. And that's who I am. And you can get into all the machinations over prophecy and who did what and where, blah, blah, blah. And you can, and I want to do that. I like to do that. But don't forget, it's about me and you for forever and all of our family and friends who come into a relationship with Christ and enemies too when they come into a, a relationship with Christ it's going to be forever ancient of days speaks of the eternality of God the hair white as snow speaks of his purity his uh, uh, hair was like wool that speaks of wisdom and his throne was a fiery flame it speaks of judgment and, uh, uh, you know, making into the image of God and its wheels of burning fire. Remember in Ezekiel, this is fascinating. Remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw this sort of same image and each one of the images were riding on a chariot with wheels that spun this way, but watch, also spun this way so that the chariot could go any direction. You get what I'm saying? It speaks of the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God. And what's the other one? I always get it. Um, anyway, all the omnis. Omnipresent. There we go. 
All the omnis of God. You got it? It speaks of that. God can go anywhere. God could do anything. God knows all the things. And praise the Lord he does. And he comes in Daniel chapter 7 to a man who was bowing down only before him. And he was providing these visions and dreams. So watch. It's, 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 it puts the hair up on the back of your neck. So that you, sitting in little West Elizabeth, PA, in 2022, can know what's coming. That's amazing. So let me just read the rest of it. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. It makes me laugh. You imagine having this dream at night? You'd be like, what's going on here, Lord? What? This is, come on, tell me. And I came near uh, uh, to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Time out. If you know nothing else, you now know that chapter 7 of Daniel is about the time of the Gentiles and it's about the kingdoms, or it's about kingdoms. And the ultimate kingdom, you read it, is when Jesus, the Messiah, comes back, and he rules and reigns. You know that. You're now, look at this. Look at this. You're getting the little football play. (laughs) You're getting the basics. You see what I'm saying? And it's going to allow us to score and be victorious and wonderful, but I can't give you the complexities until you know the basics. And so he keeps doing it. And so now you know, you don't even have to guess. Daniel tells us by the inspiration of the force, uh, or by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these four kings, or excuse me, these four beasts are four kings that arise out of the earth. Now, if you went back to chapter two, you'd see this image: gold, silver, bronze, etc., and, and iron and clay. And you'd go right down, and you'd go, "Wow!" On the image in chapter two, there were four kingdoms. Ding, 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 ding. Remember, it's a chiasm. They match up. God's coming at it from different perspectives. Why in the world, if God is giving a vision to Nebuchadnezzar, this is so wild right here, and God is giving a vision to Daniel, does one see the same vision as an image of like beautiful and gold and silver, and one sees it as beastly? Why? Because that's coming from a non-Christian pagan king's perspective. Kingdoms. Kingdoms will save us. We'll get this person elected and that person elected and this thing's going to be, and we're going to do this amazing human experiment and we're going to have utopia. It's going to be amazing. And look, it's so beautiful. We'll put up a statue that looks great. And Daniel sees it from God's perspective and he goes, wow, the kingdoms of men are like beasts. Now, time out here. I can feel some of you. Oh, I can feel it. I'm not advocating against not participating in the political process, folks. That's not what I'm advocating. You should. You should be informed. You should pray about it. You should vote in a righteous way and all of that sort of thing. What I'm saying is if you put your hope and trust in that, you're going to be sorely, 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 whatever the word for disappointed is times a million, 
you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be let down. Should we vote? Yes. Do we want to make our opinions known? Of course, no one's saying that. But don't put your hope there. Put your hope in Jesus, who's coming back to establish the kingdom that will solve all the kingdoms. So, here we go. It's a fourth beast, which, we, or excuse me, uh, if, as we go back to Daniel, it says, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which ride out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. See that? That's the end of time. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. That's funny, man. <laughs> so there's four beasts. Would you agree with me? The first beast is like a lion. And what's interesting about the beast is that the lion had eagle's wings. Eagle's wings. So you got to start to think, what is a lion with eagle's wings? Well, this is really totally fascinating. If you read the Bible in other places like Jeremiah 4, 48, 49, Ezekiel 17, Habakkuk, you'll see that the great city Babylon is equated in those scriptures to both a lion and an eagle. Now remember, back in chapter 2, the top of the head was what? Was, was Babylon. Remember that? And so here... Uh, the lion appears to be, is probably, most scholars believe, now remember, most scholars, listen to what I'm saying, believe that this lion is Babylon. Babylon was in control at the time of this vision. And you remember, this is the grandson of the great Nebuchadnezzar, who was the great king of Babylon. But anyway, they were in control at this time. There was a lion, and it has the wings of an eagle. So a lion, it's the, uh, you know, the lion is the uh, king of the jungle. But the eagle is the king of the air. It's the first bird. Babylon. In Scripture, uh, you know, you see here, right here in Daniel, that its wings are plucked off, and it's lifted up to stand like a man, and it's given a man's heart. And Everybody, almost everybody that reads that would agree that that's referring to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation or humbling. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar grew claws and hair and uh, uh, stayed outside in his hunting park or wherever he stayed for seven years? Everybody with me? Okay, watch. So if that's Babylon, suddenly there's another beast, a second beast like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Now, Babylon's army and the Medo-Persian army, which knocked out Babylon. When did Medo-Persian knock out Babylon? Remember the handwriting on the wall? We went through the story, handwriting on a wall. In one night, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 comes to fruition and the Medes and the Persian go under the moat, under the wall, break through the gates, and kill Belshazzar in one night and take over the kingdom. Remember that story? Well, the army of Medes and Persian was different militarily and strategically from the one in Babylon. The one uh, of the Medes and Persian, they would travel in massive groups like a lumbering bear. 
They wouldn't just take special significant special forces. If they needed to extract somebody out of you know, that country or this country, they didn't send seven Navy SEALs. They sent 135 people to overwhelm them. It consumed them like a bear. And you know this, one part, the Persians became bigger and stronger than the Medes. And so many people believe when it says uh, it was raised up on one side, that's a reference to how the Persians started to dominate the Medes in their partnership. And there were three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. In their preparation for taking over and being the great kingdom that succeeded Babylon, they had three significant victories in a place called Lydia, in a place called Egypt, and of course, here in Babylon. So those three ribs best explain, most scholars would say, those victories. The bear, the Medes and the Persians. Now hang with me for a minute. Just hang with me. I know. We're almost getting there. So now let's look at the third. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard. This is one of the verses, by the way, in which the critics of the book of Daniel said, okay, time out, no way this was written in 600 B.C. because this is so predictive. And here's why. Uh, I looked, there was this thing like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And when you go back to chapter 2, you remember that the third kingdom was Greece. Who was the ruler of Greece? Alexander the Great. Ever heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah, you've heard of Alexander the Great. And what Alexander the Great did with lightning speed, much different than the Medes and Persians who plodded along. By the time he was 30 years old, Alex the Great, or Alexander the Great, Alex the Great, Alexander the Great had conquered all of the known ancient world. There's this story of him laying down on his bed and crying and saying, woe is me. There are no more countries to conquer. By the time he was 29, and early in his 30s, Alexander the Great dies. And basically, his will said, give it to the one who can, uh, who's strong enough and powerful enough to handle this massive area of conquering or territory. And guess what happened? They couldn't find anybody. But they had, uh, so what they did was, and here comes the predictive prophecy. Alexander the Great his actual kingdomship, or however you want to call it, his dominion over the kingdom was actually split into four pieces by history. Remember, when you're reading chapter 7, listen, don't, don't, don't ignore this. When you're reading chapter 7 in the first year of Bashazar, king of Babylon, Babylon, your two, not one, two kingdoms or societies or leaders, or however you want to say it, away from Greece. I mean, Greece wasn't even in the vernacular. No one was even thinking Greece. And here it says that this Grecian kingdom that was lightning fast like a leopard is going to have four wings of a bird and four heads. Watch. And dominion was given to it, to the four heads, the four pieces, which they even had names, Ptolemy. You ever heard of the Ptolemies? They were given Palestine and Egypt. And Seleucus was given Syria and that area. And Asia Minor was given to a guy named Lysimachus. And Cassander was given Macedonian Greek. This actually happened. And people were like, in the Bible were like, see, see, see. And the critics of the Bible were saying, no way. That couldn't have been written before this. 
It's a self-authenticating document, folks. Anybody in here a lawyer? There's a rule that evidence is introduced without the testimony of other people when it's self-authenticating. It can come into evidence. This is a self-authenticating document. The prophecy stands out. Well, now, why did I go through all of those? Because I wanted to talk to you ultimately about the fourth beast which was different from all the others, verse 19, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head. In the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, there are ten toes at the bottom of the legs and the feet. In this dream of Daniel, there's an amazing, terrible, awful beast And whatever it is, the one thing that stood out to Daniel was this. There were ten horns on its head, and the other horn which came up, there was a little horn before which three fell, namely that horn horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came." And judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Even I can figure that out. Lion, bear, leopard, nasty beast. Four beasts, four kingdoms. It says it right there, four kingdoms. And the fourth beast kingdom on earth will be different from the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, break it in pieces. And the 10 horns, look, he explains to us, if you know nothing else, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after that who shall be different from the ones. So watch, whatever this is, there's a fourth beast. By the way, it's Rome. There's this fourth beast and out of this beast, somehow, some way, there come these ten horns. That's what Daniel sees. Would you agree with me? And out of that comes one more horn that's little. Do you see it? I mean, it says it right there. And another shall rise, and he'll be different from the others, and he shall subdue three kings. He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, intend to change times and laws. That's interesting. Mark that. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and a times and a half a time. That's just another way of saying three and a half years. Sound familiar? But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the great, uh, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints at the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all his dominions shall serve and obey him. And I read to you, this is the end of my account. His thoughts greatly troubled him. His countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So now we got to figure out who the fourth beast is. We know from Daniel chapter 2, and we know now as we see the succession from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece, we know that the next invading and terrible and great army that was different than all others, it was brutal, and it was clinical in its killing machine and its war machine and its apparatus. It it was like no other was Rome and how it took over the modern world and for how long 
or excuse me, the ancient world, and, how, and for how long it took over the ancient world. It lasted well into the 400s, 500s almost, A.D. Uh, it lasted for a long time. And so Rome is this fourth dreadful, terrible beast, but it had these stages again where there were ten horns, like the ten toes, and a future reserved for great, excuse me, and, a, and a, then a little horn uh, that uh, would show itself during the time of the great tribulation. You're like, okay, you're, you're like not, you're, you got to fill in some gaps here, and I agree with you. Remember, here's what we're doing in Daniel chapter 7. We're giving you the basic play. <clears throat> we're giving you the structure. You got to know the structure of what to do. Run a curl, run a flat, run a post, run a check down, quarterback, look here, look there. That's the basics. Now let's run it against real people. That gets a little bit more difficult and a little more complex. The same thing's happening here. Let me give you just a short little outline of the end times from the Bible. Ready? Here it goes. It's going to take me not very long at all. I'm going to give you the bare bones outline. We live now in what's called the church age. It's been happening since Acts. After Jesus died and rose again, we live in the church age. Okay? It also happens to be the time of the Gentiles. And we live in this era of mercy and grace. But there is coming a time when Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible says we believe that he's going to come back in the clouds. The clouds means he's not going to come back at the earth initially. He's going to have come in the clouds, Thessalonians tells us, and we're going to be caught up in the air. That's called the rapture. When that happens, there's this person who comes from a ten-nation confederacy, probably of Roman origin. We'll talk about that in a minute. Who uh, elevates himself and comes out of like the political and the economic world, and he has some statesmanship and some uh, uh, political, uh, uh, you know, acumen that he can navigate. And he, really, the, it's like none other. And what happens is in Daniel chapter nine, we're told that there's some sort of peace made in Israel. Now I'm. I, I hesitate to do this. I'm going to take a time out, and I'm going to walk over here, and I'm going to tell you, you can take this for what it's worth. This isn't in the Bible, but here's what I personally believe. That person, I think, is going to solve the problem at the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, the most contested area in the world. You can go there, Lord willing, and if he doesn't come back first in 2024, we go to the Temple Mount. It's the most contested. It's where <clears throat> uh, the temple was located. It's where all of life was located, and that's God's holy hill in Zion, right? I personally believe that the person who's going to solve the peace issue or the non-peace issue is going to somehow, some way, make some sort of pact where the Muslim world can exist on the Temple Mount and the Jewish Christian world can exist on the Temple Mount by rebuilding a temple there. And I think that's going to set off this unbelievable uh, <clears throat> thing that goes all the way around the world. Watch. Now, now I'm coming back to what's in the Bible where everybody is like, whoa, that dude just solved the Middle East peace crisis. Nobody could solve the Middle East peace crisis. And there's going to be a peace and a, 
sort of thing. But remember, the church is out of here. <clears throat> and so this guy who comes out of this 10-nation confederation, I think he's called the Antichrist. Let me give you this. Scripture has a lot to say about this individual who's going to appear as the head of this 10-nation confederation. He's going to pluck out three. That's for another day. Watch. Everywhere, his person and work are presented in the Bible. Watch this. Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10. Daniel 7. I read it to you. Uh, 7 through 8 and 20 through 26. Daniel 8. Daniel 9. Daniel 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Revelation 17. It's everywhere. And he's called a number of different things. But he's going to appear on the scene in the latter times of Israel's history. And he's not going to appear uh, until this day of the Lord has begun. I believe it's, that's the rapture. And he's uh, <clears throat> going to be a Gentile because he arises from out of the sea, Revelation 13.1. And he rises from this Roman Empire, and since he's a ruler of the people uh, who destroyed Jerusalem, uh, he's going to be the head of this last form of Gentile world dominion. By the way, and this is something we'll have to talk about on another day, in Revelation 13, it says he looks like a leopard, a bear, and a lion, which means he's the culmination of all earthly kingdoms. Okay. And I could go on and on. He's a political leader, seven, or he has ten horns, etc. And I could just go on and on. He's called the coming prince. He's called the son of perdition, the man of sin. He's everywhere or a lot of the places in the Bible. There's this person. He's called the Antichrist. There are spirits of Antichrist now. There's things that are set up against the Lord. Well, anyway, Lord comes back for his church Middle East peace crisis is solved somehow, or a peace treaty happens, and everything's going great. Although even then, even during that time, the wrath of God is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world in the first half of what is called the Great Tribulation period. In the middle of the Great Tribulation period, three and a half years, this leader is going to turn. Everybody's going to be duped. He's going to be a leader of one world religion, one world economics, one world poli or political uh, uh, you know, movement. And he's going to say, I'm going to, he's going to set up an image in the temple. That's why there's got to be a temple. <laughs> and he's going to say, you worship me now. And any of you that don't worship me, you're not going to be able to do anything. You can't buy, you can't sell, and goodbye. And then... The Lord's going to continue to pour out his wrath on the Christ-rejecting world through the last half of the tribulation period. Other In Jeremiah chapter 30, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the seventh week, or it's the 70th week of Daniel, as we're going to hear in a couple weeks. Now, just hold on with me for a minute. I got a point. <clears throat> and at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth. And you're going to come with him if you've died or you've been raptured. You're going to come with him. And he's going to rule and reign. And Corinthians says, you're going to participate in that. You're going to judge men and angels. I don't know how. I don't know why. You're going to be participating in the kingdom of God somehow. That's what it says. <clears throat> and for a thousand years out of Jerusalem, Jesus is going to set up a literal future 
kingdom, and it's, going to, it's called the, the millennial reign or the thousand-year period, of, or yeah, anyway, thousand-year reign. And at the end of that time, something interesting happens. Satan, who's been bound in the bottomless pit and some others, he's going to be released, and you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, some people who made it out of the tribulation into the millennial kingdom still don't have their glorified resurrected bodies and haven't made a decision for Christ. The enemy is going to come and prowl around and look for people, even in the millennial reign. And at the end of a thousand years reign, here's what's going to happen. The Bible tells us. Ready? The Bible says that the earth, Peter tells us, is in the heavens are going to melt away. And then Revelation tells us, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And so it's interesting. If you read Randy Alcorn, if you read Randy Alcorn, he always says, <clears throat> when people ask me if I'm going to heaven, he says, well, you know, if you're trusting in Jesus, of course, but what are you talking about? Are you talking about the millennial reign or the new heavens and the earth? Where you're going to reside ultimately forever is in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, that's pretty spectacular. And it's going to be amazing. So I've just given you an outline. And so when you learn that outline, watch. We're starting to learn some of the complexities of the plays or the prophecies. But it starts right here. Because here's what happened. You had Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greece, all documented extra-biblical history. And then you had Rome. And Rome was nasty. And in 70 AD, they knock out Israel. And Israel is dominated by other countries for all these years. And then something so amazing happened in 1948. uh, Israel comes back as a nation, which is showing us and uh, uh, declaring to us and with a number of other things that there's nothing that has to happen for Jesus to come back in the rapture for his church. In other words, the time is upon us, folks. Now, right there is where people get go one of two ways. Some people go, praise the Lord. (laughs) Come on, let's go. And other people go, oh, I don't know. Because remember, here's what I want to have happen. I understand there's others, brothers and sisters that believe in a rapture that happens in the middle or a rapture that happens in the the end. And I I understand that. But we believe that the rapture happens before the seven-year period of tribulation. Here's what my prayer is, that nobody in this room goes into the tribulation. (laughs) And that you're a saved, born-again, spirit-filled Christian, that you go to be with the Lord And if that happens, oh, what a glorious place would be. But you're saying to yourself right now, aren't you? But what about that person? What about this person? Maybe you're actually saying it about yourself. And good. And here's the deal. (laughs) Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us that you can come and live with him for eternity. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to bring you to that place. It'll be communion in heaven. What heaven? Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth. Get it? So you and I, we need to surrender our lives to Jesus and we're protected by the blood and we receive his righteousness. Now, one more thing. 
here you got, is it a blessed hope or is it, should I be concerned? Yeah. Not concerned for yourself. If you're in Christ, freedom, what could man do to me? I'm going to be with the Lord. But wait a minute. I just want to read you something. I wanted to read you Titus 2, and then we'll close. It's this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Watch this. Hey, older men, do you consider yourself an old man? I do, for me. Raise your hand if you think you're an old man. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. Does that hurt? Or is that, okay. Hey, older men, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. The older women, raise your hand if you think you're an old woman. (laughs) But look at this. Old women, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good thing, that they admonish you, uh, the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself, who, who here is a young man? Oh, come on, raise your hand over there. Look what's happening here. <laughs> Remember, no, lying's not good either. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that can't be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say. Stick with me. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things. If you Be the greatest employee you can be. Don't answer back. Not pilfering. Don't steal, but show all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, and all things. Watch this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. When did that happen? At Jesus' first coming. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly us, unless, in other words, laying our lives down. What are we called to do? Lay our lives down. Whether you're old or old or young or young, you're called to lay your life down in light of the fact that he's coming back. Watch. We should live soberly, righteously, godly, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might be saying to yourself, I walked in here, I didn't really know much about the Bible, and you started teaching me about Daniel 7 and some kingdoms 6,000 years ago or whatever. It's not six, but you, you get it. What does it have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and judge And there's a thing that we're to do. If you're older, you should be teaching the younger. If you're younger, you should be looking to the older and saying, hey, teach me and mentor me. On both sides, women and men, there's something that you should be doing inside the church, discipling people. That's what you should be doing. And the end of Matthew says, oh, for the world that's unsaved, go make disciples. Teach them, share with them, baptize them, and disciple them. Bring people up, evangelize, and then within the church, disciple, so you can send them out to evangelize, all within your mind that Jesus is coming back. You say, wow, I'm bored in the Christian life. I just got to tell you, 
I got to sort of empathize with you. I know, but there's no way you could be bored. Every morning when your feet hit the floor, the Lord has something for you. And here's what he has to disciple people within the church and to share with others without. And I don't care where you go. That's your mission. It doesn't deviate. It's like a one string guitar. You can't play any other chords. And then he says, why would I do that? Because God gave, or Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Okay, listen, I'm coming to the end. I want you to see that there's this Roman fourth beast and out of it came a transformation of 10 horns, some sort of 10 nation confederacy. And if you weren't here for chapter two, get the tape. There's a time gap between Rome and those 10 horns. There has to be. And I explain it in chapter two. And the time gap is now until this confederacy rises up and out of that confederacy comes a little horn that's going to act and be the Antichrist who's going to be empowered by Satan during this seven-year period of tribulation. Is everybody clear on that? Here's why I want you to know that. I just gave you the basics for 64Y flat. No, I'm kidding. I just gave you the basics of prophecy. And I'm not any great shakes. I'm just reading it and taking from the here. So now when you get to these places, when it says in Daniel 7, when you get to this place at the end, look at this. I hope this makes more sense now. Read with me one more time. 23, you're like, oh no. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, Rome, and shall devour the whole earth. It did it. It trampled it and broke it in pieces. That's what happened. The 10 horns are 10 kings. I know between the end of 23 and the beginning of 24, when you go back and listen to what I told you or come up and I'll tell you afterwards, there has to be a time gap between Rome that sort of faded away and the transformation into these 10 kingdoms. There has to be a time gap. I explained it in chapter 2. I know now that now he's talking about some current 10-nation confederation that had its origins in the Roman Empire. You say, Roman Empire? Well, calendars, clocks, thinking, philosophy, and oh, by the way, much of the division geographically of Europe still exists because of the Roman Empire. And you can do a lot of searching about that. And then out of this 10 kings are going to come a little king. And I've described him to you just real quickly. I didn't have enough time. He's that little horn, the Antichrist, who's going to make peace seemingly, but set himself up as God in the temple of God. The ultimate blasphemy. So when you read this, you go, oh, 25. He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High. I'm God. You're not. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world in the middle of the tribulation. And oh, by the way, do a number on Israel. 
But at the same time, God's going to deal with Israel so that they'll recognize the Savior. And he, look, look, one thing, and I'll close, he's going to intend to change times and laws. He's going to, it's weird. I don't even know exactly what all that means, but he's going to do something where he changes that in the middle of the tribulation. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. And you're like, oh, saints. I thought the saints were in heaven. I think that saints is talking about the nation of Israel. Israel, oftentimes in the Bible, is called saints. But here's the big but. The court shall be seated. Praise the Lord. He gave a vision of the ancient of days and Jesus, and they shall take away his dominion consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. You're going to participate in God's kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Watch, watch. It comes full circle. Second Samuel chapter 7. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you. I know that was a lot of information. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm praying, Lord, that if there's anybody here that doesn't know the Lord in a real and saving way, I pray you'd prick their hearts right now or cultivate their hearts. They would come up after and we could speak together and uh, surrender our li- or their lives to Christ. Also, if there's anybody who is sort of just not walking with the Lord, I pray you'd speak to them too and let's pray together. But Lord, we know that you are a great king with great dominion. The greatest dominion. (laughs) In other words, we now know the basic playbook and we're so thankful for it. That means a big deal for us. We can live confidently in the midst of a really weird and confusing times for many people. Thank you for not allowing us to be confused. In Jesus' name, amen.